Hello and welcome to Understanding Digital Nostalgia through John Koenig's Anamoya, a podcast from Container Magazine. My name is Hannah Aguru, this episode's host, and I'll be in conversation with John Koenig, who coined the term Anamoya in his 2021 book and New York Times bestseller, The Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. I love looking at history and how we view the past and the future through the lens of digitization, especially with the advent of artificial intelligence, also known as AI. As someone who sits in between the millennial and Gen Z generations, as a millennial, I think it's interesting to look at nostalgia from this angle, as perspectives from both the older and younger generations resonate with me. With this in mind, I've been thinking about the concept of digital nostalgia as it relates to feeling reminiscent of a time period you've never experienced yourself. During this research, I came across the term anamoya, a word coined by John Koenig in his Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. I'm joined by John today to discuss. Anamoya, nostalgia for a time you've never experienced. Looking at old photos, it's hard not to feel a kind of wanderlust, a pang of nostalgia for an era you've never lived through. Longing to step through the frame into a world of black and white, if only to sit on the side of the road and watch the locals passing by. These are people who lived and died before any of us arrived here, who sleep in some of the same houses we do and look up at the same moon, who breathe the same air, feel the same blood in their veins, and live in a completely different world. It's a world still covered in dust from the frontier, a world of adults whose lives are hammered out by hand, a world of front porches, of fires to light in the evening, of conversations over a fence. You'd feel the energy of the boulevards teeming with crowds, gathering to tell dirty jokes, awaiting news reports, or crisscrossing at random, just barely dodging the horses. You could hear the voices of hardscrabble homesteaders calling in their children for their one and only family photo. Or look around at the architecture of the old city, whose ornate limestone canyons fade back into a ghostly haze, dotted here and there with people lounging in the windows, trying to escape the oppressive summer heat. You'd watch as they carried on with their lives that seemed so important, trying to read their faces or look into their eyes so piercing and otherworldly, their gaze fixed elsewhere. They have no way of knowing that their story has already been written. If only they could look around the way you could, they could relax and soak in the atmosphere of the moment. Of course, to them, it wasn't all flickering silence and grainy black and white. They saw vivid color rushing by in three dimensions, heard voices and deafening stereo, confronted smells they couldn't escape. For them, nothing was ever simple. None of them knew for sure what this era meant, or that it was even an era to begin with. At the time, their world was real. Nothing was finished, and nothing was guaranteed. That world is now gone. If the past is a foreign country, we're only tourists. We can't expect to understand the locals or why they do what they do. We can only ask them to hold still so we can capture a photo to take home with us. So we can pretend to ourselves that we've learned anything at all about who they were and what it was like to live in another time. The photo itself means very little in the end. Maybe all we ever wanted, maybe all we ever wanted was the frame. So we could sit for a few minutes in a world of black and white with clean borders that protect us from the rush of time like a tide pool just out of the reach of the waves. So clear and still, you can see your own reflection. So Anamoya derives from the ancient Greek anemos, 
which is wind, and noos, which is mind. Uh, so it's wind mind. It's inspired by anamosis, which is a condition when a tree is warped by strong air currents until it seems to bend backward, leaning into the wind. Pronounced anamoya. Could you talk me through how you came up with that word and even how you came up with that concept? The word particularly is is driven by a nostalgia because I just, I, I love the feeling of Greek. Ancient Greek, I just picture columns and agoras. So I knew it had to be derived from Greek. It was just a, a beautiful image to me of uh, trees leaning leaning backward to where the, the wind was coming from. So I just found that a beautiful image. But for me, I, I've always been a really nostalgic sort. There's a, a site called Shorpy. Dot com, which has a ton of really crisp photos from the 1890s, the 1910s, the 1950s. And they're in such a high quality that you can just feel like you're just stepping through the frame. I felt that so powerfully, even when the frame was really dirty and dusty and you had to use your imagination to kind of figure out what was going on in a lot of old video clips and, and Super 8 footage. I get that sense as well. And in some ways, I love looking at old recordings of even, you know, the, the 60s and the 50s on, on Super 8 and, and 16 millimeter because it requires you to invest some imagination in it. It's so shaky and so grainy. It's almost like reading a novel to me. There's something about the world. Uh, it, it's just mysterious and enchanting that way. And I found myself longing to go back to that time, even though I myself was born in 1983. I've, I've never experienced it. Why did you feel that sense of connection to the 1960s and 50s in particular? It's probably built into my culture as an American. For the baby boomers, that was when home was. And so I kind of fed into that just because it's in the air. That's one theory. But I think on a basic level, you know, for me at least, nostalgia is about a kind of longing for a story. When the world is, is open-ended and, you know, everything is kind of in a whirlwind around you, you want to feel like you're a part of the flow of time. You don't want to be a, a, a blip in the, you know, a blip in a b oblivion. So if you did go back, even even to the 60s or the 50s, you knew where you were going. The, these people, you know, if you walked through the frame into uh, into some of these photos and the, these videos, um, these people had a future. They didn't know it at the time, but you know it now. And I think that's that's part of what makes it intoxicating. And that's, I think, what I try to get at in the definition as well. It's not just a fantasy of going back and living then. It's a fantasy of knowing what the future is going to be. And I certainly feel that longing, especially now, um, when everything is just so fast and chaotic and there are so many voices that you have to, to sort out. But if you could go back and, you know, figure out where all this was, was going and hold that in your head as you walked through the streets, I think that would just be relaxing if nothing else it would be empowering in a way yeah thank you for that and there's also this sense that while this may be a universal phenomenon mm -hmm. this concept may also be unique to our time period in particular as you've mentioned kind of like this idea that they knew they had a future I think you meant that more um of the fact that like we are now living in their future right. so you can see that from a temporal perspective but you can also imagine that from like a political perspective a socio-political perspective looking at like climate change and artificial intelligence as well and from that you can kind of argue that this concept of anamoya even though it may have been prevalent throughout history such as even during the french renaissance or most renaissances that have happened in the past on like a more intimate level we have like all this information 
us our fingertips through digital archives, like one click away on the internet, and you can see how people mm-hmm. were living in the 80s and the 90s, even in the ancient Greek times, etc., which wasn't present for past generations. And also, we have like these overwhelming anxieties about our future. Yeah, uh, I think our relationship with the past is is really different now. I mean, as you, as you pointed out, you know, we we see Star Wars now in a much higher resolution than anyone did in 1977, um, and you know, Peter Jackson restored World War One footage, so it feels like you're there. With AI, you can listen to Elvis cover "Baby Got Back," and and he's never felt more alive. On the one hand, the past is really uh, tantalizingly close. In a, in a way that it never was before. It used to be that you saw a movie in the theater and then a couple of weeks later it vanished and you could never, you know, you could talk about it, but you could never like recapture that. If something aired on TV, it was gone. And so there was sort of a, just the sense of a, you know, time rushed away from you and you had to sort of be present in the moment. Um, that could be one thing that we are really nostalgic for um, is the sense of, um, you know, that, that the present is real and that it matters. And, uh, and that's one thing that AI is kind of shaking up. Um, it used to be the past was sort of face-to-face and handwritten letters. Uh, now, you know, I see some insightful uh, product review or, you know, a bad political tweet. Uh, it might have been a bot. So there's a longing to engage, but then a realization that, hey, you know, you never know whether, whether someone's real or not. So anyway, these are, these are all factors, I think. Yeah, and also want something had aired on TV, you couldn't go back to it unless there was a rerun. Even going back to the 1930s when people go to the cinema to consume media, once they did that, they couldn't watch it again until... I don't think they could even watch it. I don't think any type of long-term video capturing... I'm not sure when videos were invented. I think maybe around the 60s or 70s. -hmm. But before then, there wasn't even a way of like capturing and storing something for a later time. And then even going back to the 1800s, you would have to attend a live event. You would have to go to a theatre or go to a concert in order to even um, capture music. And with this in mind, I kind of want to talk about the development of Web 2.0. So it's easier than ever to find and curate niche insular communities and bypass mainstream entertainment and even the news with more specialist platforms such as Twitter and Instagram and TikTok now and YouTube. But even within that, we have micro communities that are dedicated to certain interests or even certain periods. We have social media accounts that are dedicated to naughty's nostalgia and were often run by people who were, weren't even alive during that period or they were born during that period. So people that are like 22 running Y2K nostalgia pages. Yeah, I'm seeing this more in like younger generations because we're now living in an audiovisual age, which is dominated by digital media as opposed to print media. It's again going back to that idea of digital archives and it becoming much easier to define an individual aesthetic, but harder to define a shared aesthetic. Yeah, I think, you know, for a lot of us, the idea of having an experience is inseparable from sharing sharing an experience. And if media is fractured and, you know, even religion is and, and philosophies are all heavily atomized, um, that there's, there is no us, there's no shared reality. I've always skeptical of, of TV and pop culture, but now I kind of miss what pop culture was even in the 1990s where everyone was watching Seinfeld and Friends. But no, there's, there's nothing like that now. I find myself even nostalgic about shopping malls, which I was never a big fan of, but they, they sort of 
united people in a way that uh, social media, especially just sort of balkanized and fractured. Uh, even, even COVID would have been our, our best bet to unite everyone on earth, you know, all facing the same problem at the same time, but it all hit everyone in it's such a unique way that it didn't really feel like it, it brought us together. It, it feel like it kind of, you know, made you feel like you were living in your own world. And what do you think the turning point was? Um, I think it's it's probably got to be the internet. I mean, if the, you know, it's an easy tell if people are nostalgic for uh, for Y two K. I lived through it. I, I don't know if I would want to go back there, but you know, there's there's something about the internet that feels like you know when you use a cheat code in a game, and so there's there's kind of a longing for mystery. I think, and I think especially now, the internet feels small in a way that. I think I, I certainly feel a certain pulse of nostalgia for like 2011, 2012. That was kind of the wild west of the internet when ever, you know, there were micro blogs and lots of fun little flash projects. But now, I mean, the, the cliche about the modern internet is it's the same, you know, for social networks reposting screenshots of each other. It's not so much experimentation as it's just best practices to, to go viral. There's kind of a cynicism there. I, I sort of long for a time of, of mystery and silliness, and, and I think the internet kind of shatters that in a, in a way. And there's also the fact of just hearing so many other voices. The world is multipolar. And so, you know, if you want to feel like the hero of your own story that we all do, there's something about the internet and the communication that sort of ruins drama, you know, like thinking of sitcoms like Seinfeld or something. Most of the plots would not work these days. If, if they were they had a cell phone in their pockets we, we long for a time when the world was mysterious and it needed our help to to try to interpret it and uh and we had to to guess just to get through the day there's something about nostalgia that i think is truly universal across generations the buildings in washington dc are all influenced by their neoclassical they're influenced by ancient greek styles which you know are two thousand years old the ancient greeks were then obsessed by their own you know, earlier, simpler age, like they were a deeply nostalgic people. Everyone's going through a lot of uh, confusing times. And so they, they long for when the world was simpler again. But of course, a lot of that requires some distance to convince yourself that the world was simple. And that, that's part of my definition is that the world was not at all simple in these, uh, in these times. It was just perhaps wasn't recorded with as much nuance as we would like. My, my two-year-old daughter just this morning was saying to me that when she gets older, she wants to be a baby because she sees what her little brother, how, is, how I treat him. And, you know, she already misses that. She's two. I had to explain to her, like, here's what you have to remember is that, you know, he can't do anything. You know, he, he drinks milk and he sleeps and that's, that's all he can do. But you have all this, this wondrous, you know, life experiences you can have. And I think that's sort of a microcosm of what we're all kind of forgetting when we're so nostalgic is that, uh, uh, the past was was not at all a simpler age. TikTok in particular fascinates me. I had to, I had to quit uh, about a month ago because it was just it was too much information. Um, but it it kept trying to convince me that um, uh, for some reason that generations were like the primary division line between people. There was always like millennials are like this and boomers are like this and you know zoomers and 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 all this. Um, which I found fascinating because I've never really um, thought of, of generations like that. Well, Gen Z is a huge buzzword now. Some people born in 1983 kind of associate themselves as like Xennials. Was there much talk about Gen X as like a youth culture? A little bit. I mean, I, I, 
I loved that book. The the, the term Gen, Gen X came from a book by uh, Douglas Copeland. And it was about, you know, disaffected youths and how they felt their world was no longer defined. And it was all sort of shifting around and corporatized. And, um, you know, it's a very sort of lost and cynical book. So the irony that that book could kick off a sort of obsession with cat- categorizing, I think is pretty rich. And I think Douglas Copeland uh, acknowledges that as well. There's so many variables to that, that to try to, you know, give a personality or a sense of uh, fate even to what a, a boomer is or a Gen Xer is, is, uh, I don't know, it's, it's a thorny and complicated question that um, uh, people love to talk about. I don't know. Uh, but at the time, I just considered myself a, a person, <laughs> you know, I don't think I, I thought too much about uh, Gen Xers. And- yeah, I think there's a renewed obsession with generations and age in general on social media, particularly TikTok and Twitter, especially TikTok because it's defined as this Gen Z app. Therefore, if you're over 25 or whatever and you're on TikTok, it's like, ooh, like, I don't know. It's just like, there's just this obsession. (laughs) There's just this obsession with age and pathologizing your behaviors according to the year you were born, basically. I was watching a video essay on how we live in an audiovisual society now as opposed to a print society in the past and it talked about how the TikTokification of information sharing is kind of promoting binge consumption um, because it rests on like this model of virality where we binge consume, engage and then dispose of it within five minutes. And that kind of relates to like the boom and bust model of late stage capitalism. We have so much access, easy access to like anything. Like if you want to go somewhere to a different country, you can book a ticket today and be on the plane tomorrow. If you want to eat something from another part of the world, you can do that. If you want to buy something, engage in a certain fashion trend, you can do. Now, I mean, you can google whatever and buy it you can even buy it on a knockoff on Shein for like five pounds and then it's at your door tomorrow right with that context in mind information sharing is so accessible and so quick that we can indulge in many different personas and identities and this goes beyond the generational references to culture and fashion a few decades prior where you had to go through that analog process if you will all these choices that we have that is really stressful, I think, um, you know, on the one hand, it's freedom, but um, on the, I mean, I, I have a, a definition in the book uh, called wither will, which is sort of the, the burden of freedom. It, it, it certainly feels like a, a capitalist problem is that we are individual consumers and now everything is on our shoulders, including moral responsibility, like recycling and our own carbon footprint, but also what kind of style do we want to embody? What kind of identity do we want to take on to ourselves that's a lot of decisions to make and that's it's a really chaotic and stressful way to live and so i think you know that can help inform new nostalgia the digital anamoya as you call it yeah and you talked about your personal interest in the 1950s and 60s and wanting to be in that time period were your parents born in the 50s they were yeah 1954 and 56 so I'm sure that's, uh, you know, there's a, it's getting into psychoanalysis now, but I'm sure that's, that's related to it. But um, I, I guess sort of later than that, the pattern breaks because I just, I love the 1890s for some reason. I think there's the, the birth of modernity and, and trying to figure out 
how we deal with technology and hold on to the old country is just something that fascinates me to this day. That's always kind of been there and, and that's certainly still there for me. I also have a fascination with the Victorian era because I feel like it acts as a bridge between the, the past past or ancient history in my mind and the modern age because this was a time of rapid invention. And I think we're also, again, living in a time of rapid invention, but it's just happening at a different rate or within a different arena where it's now, instead of physical inventions, we're now doing digital inventions. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about digital is that uh, it doesn't age. You know, that used to be the thing about any medium that you would record in is that uh, the paper would yellow and fall apart and old recordings would degrade. Even VCR, uh, VHS tapes, would degrade as you watched them, which is a little bit like memories. Biologically, every time you, you draw up a memory, it's like creating another copy. The details change and degrade. And so there's something very familiar about media that encode memory that are lossy, as they say. But now if everything is lossless and shiny, it gives me the feeling that we are mortals, but the world is not. And that's the real fear with the development of artificial intelligence in general. I've been doing a lot of research around that. There's this common fear that robots will take all of our jobs, will be replaced, etc. But then I guess we can't imagine life being different to how it was for generation before where you would actually need a job, you would actually need human input for the world to go around and it's very scary to think of us not needing to do anything in order for the world to maintain itself even though that's kind of like a pipe dream for like many of us to not have to work again and again I think that was that was a concept mentioned in your book I think around anticipation of like a moment and you finally get to that moment and like you no longer you you're scared of experiencing it yeah, the thing about AI and I guess the internet in general that I find deeply disturbing is that what I expected the benefit to be is that knowledge is universally available, which turned out to be the opposite. Now, of course, the marketplace is just about to be flooded with misinformation and disinformation because it's so easy to just, you know, put chat GBT on it and then it'll spout out some BS that sounds really good. I find it really eerie. The first industries that it's coming after are the creative ones. You know, they, they do really good paintings. In some ways, I, I kind of prefer them to human artists. And that's kind of shameful to say. As far as time goes, the, the idea that now we're competing with people in other generations, because they're still alive, like is David Detmera uh, signed, allowing his voice, I think, to be cloned for AI for future documentaries. So now, I mean, I've done some narration work in the past. So now I have to compete with the great David Attenborough, you know, He's allowed to, I guess, for one to the better phrase, sell out to AI because he's, I mean, he's like 80. He's already made his money. Well, yeah, he's 93, I think. Yeah, he's already made his money. He doesn't care about being priced out. Yeah, and he, but he is the best. But I mean, the point, I mean, if, if we're, you know, in 20 years, we're still watching Harrison Ford at age 30 running around the jungle. Someone has to compete with with Harrison Ford at 30, still doing Indiana Jones in 20 years, even though he will have died before then, perhaps. We're going to still have to compete with, with some of the ghosts in our past now. You talked about how you felt like a certain interest in the 1950s and 60s when you were younger. How did this manifest? I think it was 
the Apollo missions. It was John F. Kennedy's inaugural address where he has this sort of interesting habit where he talks about things that happen in this century. It's a fascinating way to think of yourself as a part of a century. I don't think we really use the word century a lot anymore. A lot of it felt that everyone was united and pushing towards something. And of course, the 60s were a very divisive time. But um, something was very idealistic about the turn of 1960 to 61. You know, all this decolonization was happening. And it just felt like the, the world as we know it was born then. There's something, I don't know, inspiring about that feeling, that sense of that the future is open. And what do we do now? I feel like the 1960s does seem a lot more modern than the 1950s. But I think that's because of the widespread use of colour photography and video in that time. And also, maybe it's because my parents were born then. Maybe if they were born in the 50s, I would feel like the 50s were the turning point for modernity. But the 1950s for me feels like a transitionary point from audio to visual. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's definitely something to that. Maybe also something about having just been through World War II, history itself was a horrifying slog that we've been through. You know, if you go much further back than the 1950s, I don't think a lot of people would want to time travel much further than that, just because quality of life would have plummeted beyond it. The birth of our modern world was happening then. Yeah, I think postmodernism is said to start in the 1950s. Yeah, that, that's, that's actually a, a great point, because a lot of the 1950s is very modernist. It's a fascinating era. And on the more sinister side of that, a lot of young men today, or young white men to be specifically, have this longing for the 1950s and 60s as well, but for a different reason. Have you heard of trad wives? Yeah, trad wives, yeah. This kind of return or yearning to return to traditionalism in the face of hyper-modernity, Primarily by young white men, but also I've seen it from some young white women as well. I find that interesting. I guess it's a longing to return to when they were the standard, because I don't think anyone that's not a white person would want to, in the West anyway, would really want to return to the 1950s. Oh, definitely. Women couldn't get credit cards in America, at least until the 70s in their own names. Divorce basically wasn't legal, even if you were really suffering in your marriage. There were so many basic things that we don't question now that they had to face. A lot of it is just an imagined fantasy of how the world was. That if anyone actually had the ability to time travel and got even just a little taste of it, they would be like, okay, this is not at all what I thought it was. They would run from it. So in your definition of Anamoya, you likened those in the present going back to the past or imagining the past as tourists. And it's interesting to think about it from that perspective. I think I already mentioned that I have really deep interest in the Victorian era. So I talked about the act as a bridge between the historical or, or archaic world to what we know as the modern world today. And I would really love to go back to the Victorian era, but of course I'm a black woman, so. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's some problems there, yeah. I mean, there were some black people in the UK in the 1800s. I've seen the documentation of black Victorian and voodooism and what we know as black magic or hoodoo and also a lot of witches around that time. And it was interesting to hear about the ghost stories from that time period. And I think it was Mary Laveau 
She's known as the voodoo priestess of New Orleans. I found that really interesting. Despite all the horrors of history, those elements make it really interesting to go back and peer, but as a tourist. That's actually a great point because a lot of history has been whitewashed in the telling. For example, there were a lot of uh, black cowboys in the Wild West. Our, our perception of history says more about us perhaps, than it does about them in the same way that a lot of tourists, as they travel around, they shape what they want to see. You know, I studied abroad in Africa. I was in Cameroon, and I I was also aware of the expectations that I brought into it and how they were continually being overturned, even though I tried to be like, okay, I'm here to see the real Africa. But that impulse kept me from seeing the real Africa, you know, because I kept trying to bend my perceptions in a certain way or tried to have it be anything other than what it was. So before we close out, is there anything else that you want to add, either relating to your dictionary of obscure sorrows or the concept of animoia or digital nostalgia? I think there's a sense that these days that the world has been defined. It's been defined for us. And I think the reason that I wrote the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows is to try to to get people to remember that it, it is up to those who are alive to define their own era for themselves. We don't have to take our worldview from those who built it in the past. We can feel free to define it and redefine it as we wish. We don't have to take how they define words too seriously or the constitutions they wrote. We I call them nowlings, the people who share the same world at the same time. It is up to the living to define our world for ourselves, for our satisfaction. That's important to me, and that's important, I think, to what the concept of the book is. And in the context of digital nostalgia, that's something to remember is we are alive. It is our job to make this world what we want it to be. And we are not beholden to the people who built this world. They are well and truly gone. You've been listening to a podcast from Container Magazine, an online magazine exploring the humans, processes and motivations behind creative technology. You can find out more at containermagazine.co.uk. And to learn more about John Koenig's Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, head over to dictionaryofobscuresorrows.com. You can find me, your host, Hannah Aguru, on Instagram with the handle at hannahviguru and follow my blog for updates at hannahvifashionguru.wordpress.com